This is an AMI podcast. Hey guys, welcome along to the weekend edition of Double Tap. Yes, it is the Double Tap Express for Saturday. It is the 24th of June, 2023. You're listening to Double Tap Express, your weekly roundup of what's happening on Double Tap this week. Now, here's your hosts, Stephen Scott and Sean Priest. Hey, Sean Priest, how are you today? I'm not so bad, Stephen. How are you? I am good. I am good. I see you've got the uh, breakfast in early. I can smell the food this from is you. Unbelievable. I mean, it's so unprofessional of you. Oh, to, of me. To bring it up. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. I'm here yeah. silently eating, can I just say, sausage sandwich in Ugh. soft, crusty, though, soft, crusty farmhouse bread, oodles of butter, and loads of tomato sauce. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm only jealous. Let's be perfectly honest oh, about it's it. It's so good. <sighs> Listen, it's been a busy week this week. Lots of stuff going on. We're going to get the uh, latest Double Tap news from Grace Schofield. She joins us shortly. We'll also be checking in with Ventakesh Chari. The Orbit Speak might be making its arrival. Hopefully, end of June, we'll hear from uh, Ventakesh on why it's taken so long for the Orbit Speak to come out. What was that season last year when that was announced? And we're still waiting for it. So, yeah, we're going to find out why that's the case. And also... We're going to hear a very interesting conversation uh, with Patrick O'Rourke. Patrick is the editor-in-chief at Mobile Syrup, and uh, he got hands-on, hands-on, with the Apple Vision Pro at WWDC. Yes, I know. So uh, we're going to hear about that. Mark Aflalo, Double Tap TV Zone. He is talking to Patrick O'Rourke later. But we start with the tragic turn of events in the search for the missing Titan Submersible, which had been unaccounted for since June 18th. Well, that ended Thursday this week when the discovery of debris uh, confirmed to be from the vessel Titan uh, was found. A submersible operated by Oceangate had gone missing in the North Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Newfoundland during a tourist expedition to view the wreck of the Titanic. At 11am Eastern, the US Coast Guard's northeast sector announced that a remote-operated vehicle deployed by Canadian-flagged offshore tug MV Horizon had found a debris field near the wreck of Titanic. The debris was later confirmed to be part of the submersible. The US Coast Guard confirmed that the loss of the Titan was due to the pressure chamber imploding. Rear Admiral John Modger of the US Coast Guard says the tail cone of the Titan submersible was found around 490 metres from Titanic. This was a uh, incredibly uh, complex uh, case uh, and we're still working to develop the details uh, for the timeline involved uh, with uh, this casualty and uh, the response. The tragic incident has led to the presumed loss of all five individuals who were on board the submersible. John Modger says the families of the lost crew were immediately notified. I can only imagine what this has been like for them. And I hope that this discovery provides some solace during this difficult time. Modger says it's not clear if bodies can be recovered. This is an incredibly unforgiving uh, environment down there uh, on the seafloor, uh, and uh, the debris is consistent with a catastrophic uh, implosion of uh, the vessel. Titanic movie director James Cameron says there were concerns about the Titan submersible long before this week's news that it imploded on the voyage to the wreckage of the famous ocean liner. ABC News reporter Alex Stone has more. James Cameron, who directed the movie Titanic, has made numerous trips himself down to Titanic. He's built his own submersible and is ingrained in the deep sea exploration community. He tells ABC News there were worries about the safety of Titan for a while. Many people in the community were very concerned about this sub. And a number of the top players in the deep submergence engineering community even wrote letters to the company saying that what they were doing was too experimental to carry passengers. He likens it to Titanic itself and the captain ignoring warnings of icebergs. Alex Stone, EBC News. The search and rescue efforts were carried out by an international team led by the United States Coast Guard, United States Navy and Canadian Coast Guard. Various aircraft, naval ships and commercial and research ships also assisted in the search. 
It's a truly tragic story, Sean. And, you know, I think in the coming weeks, we're going to hear a lot of news about the way these subs are built. But, you know, one thing that became clear of all of this to me is that basically there are so few of these subs around. Every single one of them nearly are prototypes. None of them are, you know, guaranteed to be yes, ideal. That's right. Especially in those, in those conditions. There are some that can operate around three kilometers deep. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to four kilometers, which doesn't seem like it's that much of a difference, but in ocean terms, that's that's hugely different. Yeah, ex- exactly. It, we're talking the magnitude when you, you're just talking even meters. When it comes to that amount of pressure, that amount of weight on top of you is unbelievable. Yeah, and um, yeah, it, it's just so tragic because you know we were just kept hoping that something was gonna. You know, some miracle was going to happen, and then you start to have reports about hearing noise. Mm. So you kept thinking, "There's still time. There's still time." But um, yeah, it's just such a sad story. It is. Uh, well, that leads up our uh, double tap express news today. But let's catch up with the rest. Grace Scofield is here with all your tech news. Double tap news with Grace Scofield. Thank you very much. Breaking news. Breaking news. Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, has announced it will block access to news articles for all users in Canada. This decision comes in response to Canada's new Online News Act, which requires internet companies to pay news publishers for their content. Despite months of protest from Meta, the legislation passed, leading Meta to label it as fundamentally flawed and block news content from publishers and broadcasters to comply with the new law. Under the Online News Act, the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission will mediate if publishers and platforms can't reach compensation agreements. While Meta hasn't indicated whether it will reconsider allowing news in the future, it's worth noting that when a similar law passed in Australia in 2021, Meta initially blocked news before later striking agreements with publishers. Developing Story The U.S. Federal Trade Commission is taking Amazon to court. They say the company has been tricky with its prime sign-up and cancellation process. The FTC believes Amazon made it hard for people to cancel their prime subscriptions and even pushed them into signing up without clearly saying yes. Amazon strongly disagrees with the FTC's claims. They say they're focused on making the sign-up and cancellation process for prime as easy and clear as possible. This dispute started in March 2021 when the FTC started looking into how Amazon handles its Prime signups and cancellations. Since starting in 2005, Prime has grown into a massive service with over 200 million members worldwide, bringing in billions of dollars for Amazon. Despite this legal issue, Amazon Prime continues to be a major player in the subscription service market. There's potentially a major shift coming to the audiobook industry, as AI-generated voices could be on track to replace human narrators. The $5 billion industry, which began in the 1930s as a service for blind people, has seen a decade of double-digit growth and is poised to continue its rise and expected to be worth $35 billion by 2030. The drive towards AI-generated voices comes as publishers grapple with the hefty costs associated with producing audiobooks, including fees for voice actors. However, it's not a seamless transition. Audiobook consumers have a strong affinity for human voices, with nearly 60% of listeners reported to abandon audiobooks if they don't enjoy the narration. While AI voices continue to improve, they still struggle to match the timing, emotional delivery, and connection created by human narrators. The move to AI voices has ignited a debate on the ethical implications, focusing on voice actors' rights to their work, and some voice actors are already shunning work that might lead to their voice being used to create AI models. Furthermore, despite the progress in AI voices, the cost and time required to produce audiobooks still heavily influences publishers' decisions. As the industry navigates this transformation, it's clear that many listeners still hold a deep appreciation for the human touch in their audiobook narration. Red Sale is the host of AMI Audio's My Life in Books podcast, There's a lot and of books he prefers out there human that narration. Have never been recorded as audiobooks, and I would, of course, like to have access to them in any way shape or form so yeah the artificial voice is 
all right. However, I much, much prefer a human narrator. I have to listen to Jaws all the time. I need a little bit of intonation, a little bit of life in voices. Developing Story. Google is reportedly developing a new standard for Chromebook, internally known as Chromebook X. To meet this standard, Chromebooks will have to fulfill specific hardware requirements, including a minimum amount of RAM, a high-quality display, and a high-definition webcam. Other requirements, such as fast storage and certain processors, will also be required for the device. Beyond hardware specifications, Google plans to enhance the experience with special software features, such as live captions for video calls, portrait blur effects, and voice isolation. The Chromebook X devices will also be differentiated by their attention to detail and build quality, which Google hopes will push hardware makers to build better Chromebooks in the future. According to a line in the Google Chrome OS code, Features will start becoming available from July 20th. However, new devices with Chromebook X branding may not be immediately seen, but they are expected to roll out by the end of this year. Staying with Google, they have launched a new accessibility newsletter for people and organizations interested in the latest developments in accessible technology. The newsletter will feature a range of content, including quarterly updates, special announcements, invitations to exclusive events, and participant surveys. Subscribers will gain insights into how Google is advancing the field of accessible technology. To subscribe to the newsletter, individuals need to provide their email address. As part of Google's commitment to privacy, subscribers can easily opt out of the mailing list at any time. Amazon and Disney have announced the launch of Hey Disney, a new voice assistant that is built on Alexa technology and is now officially available in the U.S. The voice assistant, referred to as the Disney Magical Companion, can be purchased as an annual auto-renewing subscription in the Alexa Skills Store for use on Echo devices. Hey Disney is also included as part of the subscription to Amazon Kids Plus. The Disney Magical Companion introduces a new approach to bring its expansive storytelling to life for fans of all ages at home. It provides responses to everyday things like weather, timers, and alarms, as well as entertainment like Disney trivia, storytelling, interactive adventures with characters, and more. David Ward is an assistive technology instructor at Goodwill Industries of the Valleys, a nonprofit supporting disabled people across America. He hosts a regular podcast showcasing Echo Skills and showed off what this new skill sounds like here. Introduce me to Hey Disney. Can do. Hey Disney is an all-new voice assistant experience that brings the magic home. You'll find Disney-fied versions of some of my most popular features, tons of activities and entertainment the whole family will love, even interactive adventures with characters from Disney, Star Wars, and the Muppets. And it's all hosted by my new pal, the Disney Magical Companion. Thanks, Alexa. My Disney friends and I are here to add a little magic to things like weather. Ooh, it's a little chilly. Timers. Ooh, a timer. I'm good at timing things. Let me help with that. And jokes. Why should you never give Elsa a balloon? Because she'll let it go. Uh... Ah, I love that movie. We can also have fun meeting characters, (laughs) listening to soundscapes, playing trivia enjoying stories and lots more Disney fun you won't find anywhere else. Instead of saying Alexa, just say, hey, Disney. And as always, I'll be ready to help with everything else. Hope to see you soon. Audio equipment giant Sennheiser has announced its entry into the hearing aid market with two over-the-counter devices, the All Day Clear and the All Day Clear Slim. Aimed at adults with mild or moderate hearing loss, these hearing aids are built in partnership with hearing care company Sonova and will be available from mid-July, retailing at approximately $1,400 and $1,500 respectively. The slim variant, presumed to have a sleeker design, also comes with a compact carrying case in addition to the standard charging case. The hearing aids boast features such as scene detection, which seamlessly optimizes dialogue based on the wearer's environment, Bluetooth streaming capabilities, and wind noise management to reduce interference in windy conditions. They also offer a battery life of up to 16 hours and can be recharged using the included case. 
The emergence of over-the-counter hearing aids has allowed big names in the audio industry to explore the health market. Bose, in partnership with Lexi Hearing, and Sony, in partnership with WS Audiology, have also announced their own hearing aids within the past year. And one last story today. A leading tech company known for its innovative audio solutions has just revealed its latest creation, Listen Wi-Fi. This new technology was unveiled at a tech event called Infocom 2023. It's an upgrade to their previous product, Listen Everywhere, which lets you listen to audio over Wi-Fi and lets places like schools, businesses, or event venues send sound directly to your smartphone via their Wi-Fi network. All you have to do is download a free app. The company has also introduced a new device, the LWR-1050 receiver that can automatically connect to the venue sound as soon as you're in range. This means you don't need to connect to Wi-Fi or download an app to start listening. That's all for the Double Tap Express news today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Grace. A lot in there, as always. How we unpack all that? Well, thank goodness we have the week. Uh, that's all I can say. Uh, there is so much news in there. <laughs> that last story, though, really interested me because that, I think for us could be really interesting. And immediately I'm thinking audio description. Absolutely, yeah. Audio description just seems so hit and miss still. With all the technology in cinemas and things like that as well, but, I mean, yeah, aside from cinemas, theatres and things like that, this seems like um, a really good solution if it works well. If it works well, yes. Well, let's uh, hear more about that in the coming weeks, as I'm sure we will. Uh, let's move on, though, to... Uh, the big topic of the week, frankly, which uh, I kind of kicked off. I kind of started trouble. Um, <laughs> nothing unusual there. Uh, we talked about Braille, and uh, we discussed the topic. I put forward a notion that perhaps we should rethink how Braille works in 2023, and in particular, how we input Braille. Braille displays are brilliant. Braille on paper is brilliant. All of that is excellent, and I'm a huge fan of, supporter of, and will always stand up for Braille. But I think there's uh, some, I sometimes think some of the technology holds it back. And the Perkins input style keyboard, I think, holds back Braille a little bit. Because, in my view, if kids today, the children of today, are being taught Braille, they're often going to be using a Windows computer or a Mac or an iPad. Basically, a device which will have a QWERTY input keyboard. Why don't we move away from the Perkins input style keyboard and move towards QWERTY solutions? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to get rid of everything we've just built or everything that's been built for, you know, displays, for, um, you know, portable note takers, all that stuff. Not at all. But I'm thinking about just a simple third category, which is a Braille display on its own that you can sit next to your laptop, that you could sit next to your keyboard you already own. We all have a, a keyboard that we really enjoy, maybe one on our desk we use every day. Instead of putting another keyboard in front of it, which is the Perkins Input keyboard, that you're more likely to lift your fingers from the Braille display and go over the top of to get to the QWERTY keyboard, why not just remove that element altogether? Do we even need the Perkins Input in 2023? Now, what was your initial thoughts on that, Sean? Um, nervous. Um, <laughs> uh, because as you said, uh, you know, we don't want it to come across like we're in any way saying Braille is, is not essential or not necessary, not needed, because of course it is incredibly important. But you're right. It, it, uh, I always felt like there was some sort of mystery to learning Braille. It's this whole process, this whole new language almost. And I always saw the the Braille keys input as part of that. And um, yeah, I, I think there is a discussion to be had. Well, there was a discussion to be had, a great conversation about, is there really a need? Is it like reinventing the wheel? Because we have the QWERTY keyboard, which everyone is familiar with and is used, you know, as the majority for the input of any text, really, or any control. So why change that? Absolutely. Well, it, of course, has ignited a conversation in our community, which is no surprise at all. And lots of you got in touch. Here's a flavour of what you had to say to us about this this week. 
from Elijah. Hello, I agree with you that there are use cases for braille displays with QWERTY keyboards and for displays with no keyboards, but I think there are several good reasons for devices with Perkins keyboards. Number one, Perkins keyboards are much smaller than QWERTY keyboards, which allows for very portable braille devices like the APH Chameleon and Orbit Writer, both of which can be hung from the neck with a strap and easily used while travelling and in many other situations. These devices allow me to type on my phone to search for my destination in GPS apps, respond to messages, etc. far faster and more accurately than I could with the on-screen keyboard or dictation. I can even connect the Orbit Writer to my Apple Watch, which makes typing on it so much easier. A QWERTY keyboard would be far too cumbersome to use like this. Number two, when using a braille display with a laptop or desktop, it can be easier to type on the Perkins keyboard while often reading the display than to keep moving your hands from the QWERTY keyboard to the display and back. Especially with laptops with trackpads, it is definitely faster for me to type on the Perkins keyboard, especially when I'm only using braille with no speech, since I frequently check what I've just typed and when editing, I often need to switch a lot between typing and reading. Even if the QWERTY keyboard and display were closer, the size of a QWERTY keyboard would make this slower in itself. Number three. For typing maths, as a blind person, there is no comparison to typing a braille math code like Nemeth or UEB math. For anything beyond elementary school, it seems like the only choices for typing math on a computer are to not use real mathematical symbols or notation, but use ASCII equivalences, which is very hard to do for more advanced math like calculus and looks weird for sighted people. To use symbol selectors to insert Unicode symbols or math notations in word processors like Microsoft Word, which is very cumbersome and often not very accessible. To use the notations for typing math in software like the Word Equation Editor, MathType, etc., which often make it hard to check to make sure the result is what you meant and can be confusing what notation is supposed to mean what to use markup languages like LaTeX and then to generate the PDF or other format for a sighted person, which requires learning all the commands and notation you need for representing the kind of math you're doing. Always requires typing far more characters than Nemeth would, and, while the precise syntax makes it easier to validate, you will not know if you make any mistakes until you generate the document. Or to type in Nemeth or UEB Math. While there are unfortunately not very many ways to do this, there are definitely a few, such as Braille Note and Braille Sense Note Takers, both the old ones and the new Android ones. JAWS Braille Math Input, Duxbury, although I have not gotten it to work well, the Accessible Equation Editor web app, and maybe Liblui. Currently, I use LaTeX for typing math, but if there is a solution for typing in Nemeth that worked better for what I need, I would definitely use that. Even the newer markup languages with less for both math notations like typed are still not as good as Nemeth in my opinion. Number four, I would say that contractions definitely allow me to type faster and QWERTY keyboards will probably never have something equivalent. Number five, either Perkins or QWERTY keyboards probably make very little difference to the cost of braille displays since the Orbit Writer, which is a Perkins keyboard with no display, is only $99 and Bluetooth QWERTY keyboards are very cheap as well. Maybe the best thing to do is to make braille devices with a more modular design, where people could choose to use them with no keyboard, a Perkins keyboard or a QWERTY keyboard, and swap between them whenever they choose. I think the fact that the Orbit Writer exists shows there is a demand for Perkins keyboards. I understand your point about Perkins keyboard commands and interfaces being another thing to learn, but I think there are advantages for people who choose to make the effort and prefer Perkins keyboards for some things. Now we got lots of feedback in. I think that particular email from Elijah really does summarise really well and in actually great depth the need for the Perkins input keyboard. And I have to say, mathematics was just not something I even considered. I did not even give it a thought. But yeah. if you're working in those fields, if you want to get into the worlds of STEM, you know, research or, you know, into that field in science, you need to be able to do math, right? We can't, but that doesn't mean anybody else shouldn't. <laughs> No, but like with so much, so much of the feedback that we got from this, there's there's use cases that you just don't think about. You know, we we did touch on some of those points that that were brought up there, and and absolutely we agree. But um, there's so many use cases and and people using Braille for so many different things that just you know aren't the everyday, but still have definitely a, a, a useful implementation of the Braille the Perkins keys. So I thought that was a really good one actually. Yeah, and of course we also heard from uh, the BBC correspondent 
Gary O'Donoghue, who got in touch as well. And he was telling us that from his point of view as a, as a journalist, some something he needs to do is take notes quickly, right? He's got to take notes quickly and he has to be able to make them legible. And honestly, for him, it seems like it's it's a short code. It's, it's shorthand typing for him. Yeah, absolutely. If you're in the middle of a press conference and you've got to take down quotes and statements, you know, you, you've got to do that quickly. And yeah, makes perfect sense in that case. It also raises interesting questions around the literacy aspect and, and argument of uh, Braille, because we also heard from Rebecca this week, and I thought she made a really interesting point about the fact that apparently many Braillists are not great spellers. Those especially who use grade two, she says, were often known as being terrible spellers. And that really stood out for me because I didn't think about that at all. And it's not something I would have even known. I would have thought that the whole point of Braille is that you are more aware of your spelling. But of course, with contracted Braille, perhaps you don't have the same understanding of words or same memory of words, because what you're really remembering is the contractions of the words. And therefore, you know, the word, I mean, just the simple word the, you know, is simplified to a letter T. You know, yeah. I'm not saying you'll forget how the word the is spelled. I don't think anybody will do that. But you know what I mean, right? When it gets <laughs> well, into some serious Well, that's an extreme words. example. But since I've lost my sight, you do forget how, how your spelling does suffer. Um, but I mean, we hear this all the time that Braille is all about literacy. But is it? I mean, yes, of course, it does help. But it's just as, as we keep coming back to making tasks possible, even in some cases. Braille is for that as well. It's not just about literacy, though, is it? It's, um, it's about enabling people to do whatever, perform their job or perform whatever daily tasks they need to do. You know, it's interesting. Some people came back to me this week and said, it sounds like you're talking down Braille. And, and I really, I, I'm not sure what you're hearing when you're saying that or what you're hearing from this. When you hear me talk about this subject, I am very much pro Braille. Yes. And it's because of a number of things. I think partly jealousy that I didn't have the skill from a young age, but also, you know, the amount of times, and this week, a good example of this this week, and I talked about this through the week as well, was, you know, I had a pretty bad headache and just being able to sit and listen or not listen, I should say, not listen to a screen reader bark at me and actually be able to read something on a Braille display in silence Mm -hmm. That is probably the best skill I think I could get. And, and I'm not there yet. I'm not there enough for the reading component to irritate me. I'm still irritated by it. And I know the answer to this. I know exactly what the answer is for me, which is just do more of it. Just keep yes. doing it. Yep. Dive in. Yeah. Yep. I got a lovely email, a private email, but I don't mind saying from Lena. Uh, she sent me a lovely email saying, you know, okay, I understand your frustrations, but you've just got to apply every day a bit of time, 10 minutes aside, do a bit of reading. And our good friend, Red Sale, of course, from My Life in Books, good friend of ours, yeah, he, uh, he's in the same place. He's, he's actually really enjoying Braille. He took uh, one of the courses here in the UK with the Braillist Foundation. And I'll be honest, I wasn't sure how he would get on because he is a rock climber. And he struggles with his fingers. He's, you know, he's pretty much ripped his fingers apart doing rock climbing. But he's managed <laughs> to figure out how to do this, and he's actually getting on really well with it, and he seems to be loving it. So, you know, I just all this kind of stuff, you know, dare I say, inspires me. But it does. It does. Uh, a really yeah. interesting conversation this week on Braille, and uh, yep. it's not over because we have lots more comment to come on this. Lots of you have had plenty to say, so we'll get into that on Monday's episode. And please do keep that feedback coming on this and all our stories today. Feedback at doubletaponair.com. 1877-803-4567 is our number. Double Tap Express continues next. Connect with the Double Tappers on social media now. On Twitter and Facebook at Double Tap On Air. And on Mastodon at Double Tap. So we're due to, well, hopefully see the launch of the Orbit Speak from Orbit Research uh, at the end of this month. Uh, it's a much anticipated device, Sean. Yes. I think that's fair to say. Um, say that again. <laughs> Orbit Research say the new device is likely to evoke memories of the classic Braille and Speak device because it's a Braille input keyboard with only speech output. <laughs> They've clearly not been listening to this show. Uh, well, uh, Ventakesh Chari is the CEO of Orbit Research, and he told us why it's taken so long for it to come to market. 
So the genesis of the idea was uh, in having a device, a simple device with similar capabilities uh, to the orbit reader, but with speech as output instead of Braille. Um, and uh, as we thought about it, you know, uh, it was very easy to draw parallels with uh, the Braille and Speak and um, mm. uh, which was a, a revolutionary device. It was, uh, for many, many users, their sort of first um, you know, contact with, with, with technology for such purposes and uh, did what it was intended to do fabulously well. So we felt that, you know, that, that need still existed and there was, a, there was a, a, a place for a simple, very compact, affordable device that uh, gave speech output and had Braille input, which also is one of the things that allows it to be really compact. Okay. So, and that's due out when? That's due out before the end of June. And do you ha- do you have a price on that at this point? So we don't have an exact price set, but it uh, it's safe to say that it'll be somewhere around the five hundred dollar range. Why was there such a delay with this, or was there even a delay? It seems like this was announced, and there was it was the, the pre order page was up for a, a long time, and there was a lot of interest in it, but it just didn't seem to appear. Was there any problems when it came to the orbit speed? Yes, there actually, uh, unfortunately, were were problems, and uh, uh, much of the problem is really related to the broader problem uh, in the electronic uh, component space. So, as as you know, you know, uh, since the start of uh, the pandemic, um, the uh, you know, electronic component industry went uh, into a state of deep turmoil, and uh, availability of parts affected. Almost every aspect of of our, of our lives, you know, from uh, you know car factories shutting down, production lines because they no longer could get chips to to make the cars, to you know uh, companies like us uh, struggling to uh, to to produce products that you know were in in, in stable production, uh, let alone new products such as the. Um, the orbit speak so we you know the, the supply chain issues were the primary reason why there were rather significant delays you know one of the key components that we were using uh the manufacturer you know uh, changed plans you know decided to 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 do something different we had to really struggle to you know to convince them to continue to make that part since we had already gone quite a ways in our in our design work and that set things back by several months unfortunately you know we had expected to have the product on the shelves by by christmas last year yeah and uh, so now it's unfortunately delayed you know by around six months or so so they're saying end of June, but I think realistically, Sean, you know, the NFB and the ACB conventions in the States kick off in July, early July. It's probably likely, I would imagine, that is when we'll see these devices emerge or this particular device emerge. Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, you know, these conventions are, are usually where we see unveilings, shall we say. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right on that. And um, as long as they're still on track, then uh, I would expect to see them there. And, you know, as we said, there is a lot of anticipation over these. People are really interested in this device. I know I am. I definitely want to try this out. Yeah, I must admit, I love the, the Orbit Writer idea. It's very similar, right? Because it's, it's, it's like the Hable One. It's it, the input keyboard on its own. Yep. Um, but this with the speech return, I think that's quite interesting. Kind of goes against everything I just said about Braille, doesn't it? It does. It's a complete opposite. So, well done you. But no, uh, see, I can't read Braille for the life of me. I cannot get the, I cannot tell the difference in those dots. I can't tell the positions. Again, it sort of goes back to Rebecca's just, just keep doing it, keep doing it. Yeah. But um, this would be really interesting to me, uh, just having the speech output from it, just so I could work, still work on learning Braille from that side of it. So, um, yeah, I'm, I definitely want to try one of these out. We shall watch with interest. And, of course, here on Double Tap, you'll get the latest news as it happens. And as soon as it's announced, we will tell you 
all about it. Uh, now, on to our final story on Double Tap Express this week. And uh, you might have heard the software to develop apps for Apple's Vision Pro headset is out, and developers seem to be having fun. Currently, it's software only, with hardware developer kits likely to become available in the next month. However, that hasn't stopped videos appearing on YouTube showing how the operating system looks and feels. Patrick O'Rourke is the editor-in-chief at Mobile Syrup, and he actually got hands-on time with the Vision Pro and has been telling Double Tap TV's Mark Aflalo all about his experience with it. It's been only a couple of weeks since Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference, but, you know, the conversation's going to continue going for quite some time now, thanks to, of course, all their announcements. At the event this year was the editor-in-chief of Mobile Syrup, a great source that I follow for great stories and all, all the news and tech. Patrick O'Rourke joins us now. Thank you for being here, Patrick. Thanks for having me. You know, I really enjoyed uh, reading all the coverage, watching uh, you busting your butt at, at Cupertino. Um, uh, I was listening to the Syrup Cast, you guys' podcast, which you guys, if anybody has not subscribe to that yet you could find that on of course any any podcast platform uh before we dive into obviously the specifics because there's obviously stuff we want to talk about do you know how many events you've been to apple events you've been to in your lifetime have you figured that out yet oh man i don't even know (laughs) um i know i started physically going to actual events uh probably just just after the apple watch came out so i think 2014 2015 something like that covering the industry for far longer than that but actually getting invited and going to the events was was around that so how did this event compare to others because i think that if you speak to anybody who was there it was a little bit different the flavor was different yeah i mean wwdc i don't i don't want to say it's typically a boring event to cover as media but to be honest it is sometimes it's all software focused i care more about hardware in most cases there, there is a lot of like fun stuff to unpack at WWDC, so there's two different ways to look at it. But this event in particular on the media side, everyone was hyped. It, it's, it's rare for Apple to introduce a new product category, and everybody was almost certain that the Vision Pro was coming. So, I, I mean, there's like this air of anticipation in the air that we knew this was going to happen. And like for, for me, I, I've been around not forever, but quite a while at this point. <laughs> um, and I've never... Other than the HomePod, which I don't know if I want to count it, I've never been around for a new Apple product introduction. So it was particularly <laughs> exciting for me in terms of like a career milestone to see Apple introduce something something new uh, for a change and me physically being at that event for that. Now, you know, you talked about the fact that the, you know, uh, Vision Pro wasn't a surprise. I mean, a lot of people expected it. And I think that if it didn't come, we would have been more surprised than anything else. Um, and, and we knew a fair bit ab- about it beforehand, but there's so much that we didn't know. So what was the initial reaction when that first came up on the screen, you know, from Apple Park, where people just kind of like, you know, was like, OK, let's let's find out more details here. I think from the media, it was a lot of <laughs> it was a lot of like a bit of awe, a bit of like poking jokes at different things, because a lot of some of the presentation was was like a greatest hits of VR, right? Like, yeah, we've seen this before. We've seen Oculus do it. We've seen Vive do it. It was all the like demos that you you've seen in the past. Right. So there wasn't anything during the presentation that really stood out to me as someone who's used a lot of these headsets over the years. Developers, there was like gasps and cheers and and that sort of thing. But you, you get that at every WWDC, right? Yeah. Um, I think for me, the big thing was like, okay, this sounds impressive. I like what you're doing here, but I need to try it. I need to physically put this thing on and I need to see if what you're saying about this headset and, and how you're hyping it up, I need to see if that's true. Now, did you know going into this event that you were going to get an opportunity to go hands-on? I didn't. And I also didn't even know like after it was revealed. So the way these events work is like you you get a mysterious list of briefings and you don't really know what they're for. And then you slowly figure it out. Um, And then through the grapevine, you hear about like other people that had certain briefings uh, on a specific day and you kind of piece it all together. And and between myself and uh, the other member of the mobile serve team that was there, we, we kind of figured that we weren't going to get hands on with the headset on the first day, like the, the day of the keynote but we thought that we probably would the second day. So we tried to cater our content on the first day around that and then cleared our schedules for the second day. And, and that that is how it worked out. But we we didn't know for sure until like I was literally in the, the demo, like headset demo area. Did you at least know ahead of time that you were going to be there for a couple of days? Because I'm sure people yes, plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You, you, you know that for sure. But a lot of the details <laughs> of what you'll be doing during that time, and this is Apple. Like this is what Apple always yeah. does. A, a lot of the detail regarding what you'll be doing during that time is 
is unknown. You, you kind of know, but you kind of <laughs> don't know. It makes planning a lot easier. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so tell me, you know, so so you've you know you've seen the unveil. Obviously, you hear other people's experiences. What were you expecting walking into that briefing room and walking into that hands-on experience versus what you got? Um. Yeah. So I had a little. I had a few preconceptions in my head about the headset. I I expected everything Apple was doing with it to be better than what I'd experienced with other headsets. Um, that That's kind of what I assumed would be the case because that's typically what Apple does, right? Like they, they come late to a product category, but they do it better. And and that's not all, all the time that the situation, but that's what we've seen a few times over the years. AirPods probably being the most recent example to some extent. Yeah. Um, so going into the demo, that was the thing that I was focusing on. It was like, okay, so they talked a lot about the, the 4K plus displays. Are those displays actually as good as what they're saying? Um, they were. It was probably the clearest display that I have ever looked through in a VR headset. I, I don't want to say that it like looked like the real world, but it was very, very close, and I I could hardly see the pixels. That was one of the key things. Um, and then the other thing that just based on the rumors and the reporting that that I had done for many many years now on this headset is uh, the little digital crown on the side of it. Yeah, that was something that I was very interested in because I've seen other headsets do it. Not with a digital crown, but like that idea of being pulled into virtual reality. Someone walks into the room, you need to speak to them. You spin something, you press a button, and and they suddenly appear. Um, I was very interested in how Apple handled that with their little spinning digital crown mechanism. That also worked extremely well. I was very impressed with it. Um, Apple had me try a demo where like they wanted me to to spin it, and the person beside me instantly appeared. It was it was a way to like kind of still have the headset on but connect you with the real world. So. A lot of the stuff that I was going into the demo um, thinking we're, we're kind of like confirming my preconceived yeah. guesses about it. One of the things you mentioned in uh, in your podcast, in the Syrupcast, was the um, the precision and the eye tracking. Yes. And, yes, yes. and you said you, you were super impressed with that. What is it about that that impressed you? Just the getting used to it? What was the experience like getting used to it in the first place? It was pretty weird. Um, first, like 30 seconds listening to the Apple rep trying to explain to me how it works uh, was bizarre. And like, I couldn't I couldn't do it. But after like, I don't know, a minute, I, I caught on to it. So I'll, I'll give like a quick, very quick explanation of how it works too. Like, so your, your eyes, I've been describing them as your eyes are the mouse. Everything you look at is instantly highlighted. Um, and then your fingers making this like little little claw motion here like this. That's yeah, the mouse pinch button the pinch yeah pinch i always forget that every time i talk about this i never <laughs> call it pinch um so when you look at something you you pinch and that's how you, you navigate this this operating system um and it's weird because you want to reach forward you want to like grab the icons you want to like touch them but that's not what how it's designed you can pinch from wherever you want there's cameras all over the front of this headset you could pinch from like down on the floor, like on not not on the floor, but on your on your lap, because there's you, don't have to, you don't have to bring your hands into view. Exactly, like you could be yeah. literally just naturally just doing whatever you want. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And that was weird. It was it was different than any other type of VR AR interaction that I've ever had before. But it was also far more intuitive once I got the hang of it. Felt incredibly natural. I tried to break it, much to the Apple reps' <laughs> dismay. Like I was darting my eyes all over the place, looking at everything, like clicking all over, and I couldn't. It just it just worked. Um, which was really cool to see. And that wasn't something that I went into the demo expecting. That was something that I was surprised about. I'd heard like rumors about it, but I didn't, I really didn't think Apple would be able to pull that off. And they did. Yeah. There's a lot of things I think that people don't realize or, or can't possibly imagine until you try something, you know, and this is one of those experiences. Now you're, you're a big gaming guy. So I'm assuming that you've tried every single virtual reality headset that has been on the market so far. How did it differentiate and, and where if you know, if you're trying to look forward to when this is released in a year from now, do you think Apple will still be ahead of the game with this technology in a year from now when it comes out? I think so, just because the hardware cycles with the other companies are so, so long. Like I know we do have the MetaQuest 3 on the horizon, but based on what I know about that device, it doesn't really rival what Apple's trying to do. Yeah. The other thing I should probably mention, too, is like Apple didn't talk about gaming at all. They yeah pretty much pretended like this is not a gaming device, though we we know it's going to play games. Like they talked about how it's going to play Apple Arcade games. That was the only mention we got. Um, and I was a little surprised by that because I thought that they would trot out, I don't know, like 
the developers of Beat Saber or some big VR game or something like that. And they didn't. Um, but yeah, I, I think one of the things I'm worried about is the fact that there aren't any physical controllers that come with it. There's like this tactile feel that you get that's kind of required in the gaming space yeah. a little bit in, in VR. And there's no physical controllers. You can use like the PlayStation um, DualShock or the Xbox Series X controller with it. But my understanding is that they're not going to be motion-based or anything like that. The like stock, I guess you could say, input method is just your hands. Um, and I really, I didn't like pick up any objects or anything like that in any of the demos. I don't know if the headset's capable of, capable of that. Um, did have a dragonfly land on my finger, but I didn't didn't pick up the dragonfly or anything. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I I don't know. It, that's one of the big questions about this headset. If if it will be capable of creating engaging gaming experiences and if it's not, I'll be pretty disappointed because the display tech would look great in, in a gaming use case. Yeah. What about design and build in terms of, you know, comparison to other devices? Obviously, it looks so futuristic. I mean, this is uh, is it like that in person? Because a lot of people were saying that pictures don't do it justice. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. Like, I mean, there's two sides to this. I, I think it looks incredibly cool. I think it looks like this crazy cyberpunk set of ski goggles. It's the nicest looking VR headset I've ever seen. Feels super high quality. It's a little a little weighty in, in some areas. Like after having it on for 30 minutes, it I could feel it. I could feel it like kind of resting on my head um, because it's made of metal or aluminum. Um, but it, it like the other side of this is it's still a VR AR headset. And there's like a geeky nature to those things. Um, so I, I get the jokes. I get why people were making making fun of the look of it. Like, you really want me to put this on my face? It's it's not it's not cool to the average person. It's cool to me because I like this stuff. But like the average dude on the street, he's not going to think this thing looks cool. Um, but generally, I was very impressed with the build. It's the nicest, most impressive VR head, even just holding in your hand. Like you, you can feel that it's an Apple product is probably the best way to describe the build quality. So what do you think? What do you think is going to happen with this headset in a year from now? Do you think that this is – I almost get the idea that it was almost kind of a proof of concept for for augmented reality, you know, and that there's still this dream of just a pair of glasses you throw in your face that have all that functionality, but they just know the technology is still years away. Yeah, that, that that's how I feel about it. Like, sure, this thing is crazy expensive. We, we don't even have a Canadian release date, to be clear, too. It's, yeah. it, it, it's, it'll probably cost like 5K Canadian if and when it does come out. <laughs> which is insane to, to think about. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is that this is not a mass consumer device. Like Apple yeah. needed to release a physical product that focuses on VR and AR to get developers, uh, Apple developers yeah. that are involved in their ecosystem to start creating apps for a platform like this. And this is, I've been describing it as like the start of a long journey for the company. Like this is the first gen, first version of this headset. It's not what Apple wants to release. They want to release like a pair of sleek, AR glasses, just glasses, yeah. just like normal looking sunglasses like yeah. things. That's what they want down the line. But to get to that point, they got to release some sort of hardware um, and hope that developers create software for it that will help sell the device in the same way that third party software in some ways, not in all ways, sold the iPhone back in the day. Um, will that work out? I don't know. But if any company can pull it off, to me, it's yeah. it's Apple. They got infinite money, in some ways, infinite time. They'll shove this VR AR thing down our throats for as long as they can. Did you get the feeling developers were buying into it? Yeah, I, I didn't get the chance uh, as much of a chance to talk to developers as I would have liked. But the few that I did speak to were excited about it. Um, and we, we, we published uh, like a, a short story of like different perspectives of, of Canadian developers on just WWDC in general. And, and a lot of them basically came up with different ways that they think they could integrate the headset into their existing apps. Um, I don't know if that's the way to look at like a new product category like this. I, I'm not a developer, I'm not certainly not smart enough to make stuff like that. But to me, it's like someone's got to come up with an original idea. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that, that's what this is for. It's not for that like killer app. They call it, right? Yeah. It's not like an AR version of your existing iPhone app. Like that app's on the iPhone for a reason. That's where it works. And the question is whether or not anyone's ever going to come up with that killer app right i i think developers are excited about it is is what i would say but a lot just don't know what to do with it yet yeah i'm kind of wondering if it's going to go the the i don't think it will but if it'll go the direction of the hololens you know which still exists but it's very business oriented it's very specialized but i think apple is just not going that direction there's they're going to push it as you said down our throats 
the consumer yeah, the, side of things. The HoloLens is an interesting device. I, I tried it a, a couple times and it is very impressive and it, it like worked, but it also didn't work at the same yeah. time. Like some of the AR object moving stuff was super glitchy. And yeah, like, like you said, uh, Microsoft very quickly pivoted to making it like an enterprise business focused device. And I don't even think there's anyone left working on the project now at this point. They laid a bunch of people off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I know Mercedes I don't think... is using it in like dealerships and, yeah, yeah. and in the medical and in CAE stuff uses it. But that's about it. That's all I yeah. hear about. Yeah, for sure. Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Obviously, uh, you guys listening could uh, find Mobile Syrup online. The Syrup Cast, a great podcast. Again, subscribe to that and uh, and come back again. Talk more, more, more stuff more than more than just Apple in the world today, especially here in Canada. Yeah, anytime. Happy, happy to be on again. Thanks for having me. Really interesting to hear from Patrick Carroll getting his hands-on time with the uh, Apple Vision Pro. Developer kits are coming out soon. The software is out, and some of those videos are quite amusing, uh, Sean, because we're getting a sense now of how this will work, at least in the virtual sense of the virtual, if that makes any sense. <laughs> the virtual of the virtual. Yeah, yes. you're not seeing the actual version no, exactly. yet. You're seeing it through a computer screen, which is kind of <laughs> weird. I just hope that the rumours of, you know, not, third-party apps not being able to access the cameras are not true because that yes. really takes it away from us in a huge way. Um, you know, I, I just hope, it's all hope that that isn't the case. And it's not the only thing. There are other reports now coming in about other aspects of the headset that will not be open to developers. And uh, I, th- I think that's probably fair for a first-gen product, but I think when it comes to second-gen and onwards, and you know, I think Patrick's absolutely right. This is not the product Apple wanted to bring out. So, no. you know, if that's the case, I ain't buying it. <laughs> I ain't buying. I'll, I'll, I'll wait till we'll Apple see. say this is the one we did want to sell, <laughs> which will, yes. of course, be the second gen, which will be the best ever. That's how it works. Uh, wow, what a week! Uh, we've got more starting Monday on Double Tap as a new week begins. Uh, keep your feedback coming. Share your thoughts on everything you've heard here. Feedback at doubletaponair.com. one 4567 Sean, thank you as always, and we'll catch you Monday. Thank you. Bye-bye. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.